Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a long-time user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 53 for November 2015. I am your host number one, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host number two, Mike McGinnis. How you doing, Mike? You know, show number 53, pretty soon our show is going to be able to apply for uh, AARP membership if we keep this up. That's true. Yes, it's doing very well on its 401k. <laughs> How are you? I am excellent. I'm looking forward to our uh, interview, actually. Yeah, this should be uh, should be a lot of fun. A couple of my favorite games we're going to talk about. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> Why don't we to uh, roll that. right into that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that voice you heard uh, is, uh, in fact, David Schroeder. Um, I hope I pronounced that right, David. You bet. Okay. And we're David, of course, is the author of uh, Crisis Mountain, I think, well, probably one of my all-time favorite Apple II games, and I enjoyed uh, Dino Eggs very much as well. Uh, hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hello, Mike. Hello, Quinn. And it's great, great to be here. Great to talk with you. So we'll, we'll start off with the question that we like to ask everybody who joins us. Uh, tell us about your first experience with the Apple II. Yeah. Um, it, uh, I, I'm, I'm gaining in my appreciation of what an amazing time that was and what an amazing machine it was. Uh, looking back over my notes as I have been in the last several months, uh, uh, looking over my design notes for Crisis Mountain and Dino Eggs, it just, it just comes full in the face uh, in my memory, just how amazing that era was. I, I first um, had a chance to work with Apple II is because that was the computer that the local um, computer lab in the uh, community, Seattle Community College uh, stocked. And, you know, at that point, I um, had become intrigued by seeing some of the coin-operated arcade games and uh, just was blown away by the astounding month-by-month month, or sometimes even week-by-week week, progress in the sophistication of those games and opening up whole new worlds uh, Asteroids and uh, Donkey Kong, particularly, and other games, uh, Battlezone. And so I thought when I started seeing uh, some uh, home computer game ads in old computer game uh, magazines that were starting to show up, uh, they talked about all these machines and, you know, Texas Instruments and Atari 400 at the time was that machine and the Vic, Vic 20. And, you know, if that, I have to admit, if that Seattle Community College had stocked its computer lab with some other computer, would I have tried to write Crisis Mountain on that computer first? And I think the answer probably is yes. But fortunately, they stocked Apple IIs. And so I just immediately signed up for an independent study course. I couldn't afford one at that time to buy one. So I signed up for a community, uh, kind of a lab course, an open-ended lab course, just to get access to this room full of apples. And uh, that was that was the moment when I got my hands on it. Yeah, I think that experience echoes a lot of us, honestly. We, we talk about that on the show that, uh, you know, we're all sort of devout Apple II fans here, but how much of that is honestly just because that's the machine that our parents brought home, or that's the machine that our school had, or for whatever reason, that was the one that uh, we had access to, and uh, thus became subsequently obsessed with. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a big, big part of it. All of us owe enormous 
you know, uh, dead in our lives to serendipity. However, it has to be said, too, that Apple was the computer that was aggressively talking to schools and aggressively talking with community colleges to make that happen and to make it financially possible for them to do that. So that was, you know, indicative of their culture, uh, which uh, certainly at the time was not a kind of make a quick buck culture so much as it, I mean, it was, it was a mixed culture. It was a, a richer culture. And that probably was why those Apple IIs were in the community college where I found them. For sure, yeah, and I think the design of the Apple II has a lot to do with why we all kept using it, you know, the expandability and, and flexibility of the architecture. Certainly if I had, you know, started with a, a VIC-20 or something, I, I wouldn't have kept it for, you know, 14 years as I did my Apple IIs, so I think that has a lot to do yeah. with it as well. You're right, because then, you know, when I began to basically try to recreate Donkey Kong on the screen of the Apple II, you know, I I didn't know from from whatever, you know, how to do it or, 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 or how I could, uh, what language I needed to learn. I tried it in basic first because obviously there's the language right there ready to go, basic. And I quickly found out that that wasn't fast enough. So then I turned to these books that were there and, and there's the, another little serendipity. You know, there were these books, uh, I think one of which probably did come with the apples, which would be the kind of machine code guide. But uh, one of the Roger Wagner books was there, too, about assembly language uh, and how to use his assembler. You know, if if the organizations didn't exist, like uh, call APPLE um, and Roger Wagner's books and getting those into the community college, I don't know quite, again, what next step would I have taken? But the books were there, thank goodness. And the call APPLE group was in the Seattle area. And so I, I had the resources fairly close at hand to, to teach myself what I needed to, to learn. So uh, let's talk about uh, the games themselves. So uh, for you know, for our listeners who may not know, of course, you're the author of, of Crisis Mountain and Dino Eggs. And uh, uh, as Mike and I said at the top of the show, those are both uh, two of our favorite games. Uh, can you talk? Uh, let's start with Crisis Mountain. What you know? What was the genesis of that idea, and uh, how did how did the development process kind of proceed? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you know, in Crisis Mountain, I have to admit, I was mainly trying to just kind of do Donkey Kong. Now, that isn't to say, you know, I was aware that you know I needed to make it my own game, and I think it did make it my own game. I'm very pleased with. Uh, the whole concept of bombs in a volcano and and uh, the different qualities, uh, regenerating the health of the little guy. Uh, you know, one of the comments uh, on a blog I'm doing on Gama Sutra, industry game site Gama Sutra, made the interesting point that he didn't know of any other computer games that early on, 1982, 1983, that had regenerating the concept of renewing health. Uh, and it, and it's certainly true in the coin-operated games at that time. It was all or nothing. It was you're dead or alive. And then as games got more sophisticated, you could have injuries. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I don't know where I got the idea of you could actually heal yourself if you, you know, didn't run into another boulder uh, thereafter. But I just mentioned that because all these little nuances get layered on to, to game concepts and make them richer. Um, I was basically just trying to see if I could sort of do Donkey Kong. 
and everything the way in which Crisis Mountain is different just seemed to come naturally out of a desire to use the tools that I had and put a little bit more uh, variety and variation in it. Um, but I, I was just kind of scrambling with Crisis Mountain to just get that feeling of that little guy on the screen um, in an interesting way. And the concepts just kind of came to me one at a time, working with the light pen. Again, that was another thing I was lucky was at the community college, a, a light pen system uh, 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 with a table. At that Later on, I got a Gibson light pen where you could actually work on the screen itself. But at the community college, they had a light pen system where you were working on a, on a, a a desk surface, a portable table uh, platform. And uh, yeah, that was invaluable too, to design the cavern backgrounds and to begin to understand the relationships between the X and Y coordinates of the pixels and the amazingly arcane way <laughs> in which those map to the, to the memory locations on the Apple screen. Now, obviously, uh, Crisis Mountain is a fairly sophisticated game. Um, how long are we talking about for, for development here? Because, you know, we, we, we've heard Bob Bishop in the past talk about how he would sit down at 6 o'clock in the evening, and by 6 a.m. he had a working game, you know, beginning to end. <laughs> I, I assume you're, you took a little bit longer than that. I, I assure you I'm no Bob Bishop in that <laughs> regard. Um, now, basically, each of my games from those years... Um, took about a year and uh, it was you know I didn't really intend that or or set out to to do it that way it just seemed that that's kind of what happened um so crisis mountain uh then dino eggs then short circuit uh and then my set of uh, christmas games uh which random house published each in each case it was pretty close to a year and of course, the last few months of that year were a mixture of testing uh, and polishing and going back and forth with the publisher and also beginning to think about the next game. So there's overlap here, of course, but but it was pretty in, in mo most of these cases it was pretty much a year. Now, was it just you? Uh, were you working solo or did you have um, do you have other people helping you out? It was all me, and in fact, you know, that's really why it feels like a golden age to me in, in hindsight. Um, I had plenty of stresses at the time. I was hardly in nirvana uh, at the time. I, I have a t talent for making myself anxious no matter what's going on, you know, <laughs> lucky or not. I, I think a lot of people have that talent. But um, it was me, and the reason I look back on it as kind of a golden age was because that's kind of creatively who I am. I I do work with other people. I'm not a recluse. I can work with other people, but I think I thrive um, on my own. And, you know, these were the days, and the days were short, but they were the days when a single person could, in fact, do every bit and every bite and every sound effect and everything. Um, and those days... Uh, went by quickly and it wasn't long before uh, you needed teams and then in the late mid and later 80s i joined teams uh for other games um we i was involved with an adaptation of uh tolkien's uh, lord of the rings actually long before it was uh, the household word that it is now and other projects including for america online uh but in those early years, it really was you could sit in your attic and do the whole thing. And I I just really enjoyed that. Uh, so it was 
it was me and the you know in my first game i got tiny tiny bits of feedback from the publisher my second game a little more feedback but when you you know think compare that to focus groups and beta testing and all the kind of stuff now i mean it's just hardly any feedback it was just just me trying to figure it out <laughs> at what point when you're developing crisis mountain did you say to yourself you know i think i might be able to sell this game and and then did you just call up start calling around publishers or how did that happen it was pretty much like that uh mike i i i as i say i i first kind of started putting the ideas together by reading early computer magazines like creative computing and byte and it was those ads in those magazines that were in many cases very clearly taken out by individuals sure and in many cases they were selling individually recorded audio cassette tapes for those systems that took in you know audio data as some of them did in that day from cassette tapes and they were selling things in in sandwich bags you know with with xeroxed instructions and there were a few ads in the magazines in those days where there were companies uh very early very early companies like synergistic software uh sierra online um and but they were clearly also very primitive so i i from the very beginning i saw this as a possible way to to make a living and as crisis mountain took shape I began contacting from the ads in the backs of the magazines, the the ones that, that looked more organized, the companies that looked more organized. And uh, Synergistic Software being in the Seattle area, that just kind of came together quickly uh, because they responded quickly. And um, I liked Bob Clardy very much. He's also a great pioneer in the early uh, computer game days. Uh, he wrote some very pivotal and seminal uh, uh, adventure games in the transition from text-based adventures to graphic-based adventures. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was a great relationship that started fairly efficiently there. So um, let me uh, let me dig down into the sort of the technical aspects of Crisis Mountain a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier those uh, blog posts on Gamma Sutra, and, and uh, we'll link to those in the show notes. They're a great read. One I of the those. things I uh, yeah, one of the things I really love about those blog posts is that you've got these amazing photos of your of your notes from the time, and uh, they're just absolutely fascinating to 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 stare at. Can you talk a little bit about kind of some of the technical details? I mean, whatever you can remember. Obviously, it was a long time ago, but uh, uh, some of the details of, like, say, the you know the rendering of the terrain and the little guy and the collision detection, some of those things that you know are relatively straightforward on you know other platforms, but on the Apple II can be quite challenging. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, happy, happy to do that, Quinn. And it's been a kind of a, a path of rediscovery for me too, because I look at my notes and I think, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. I had to do that. And I, oh my, you know, I, I remember parts of it, but then I look at the notes and I realize, my gosh, this is so, this is so detailed. So yeah, I, I think, I think to, first off to paint with a broad brush, I would say this, and a lot of your listeners probably know this, but just to kind of get it out there, you know, every pixel on the Apple screen was just that, an on-off pixel. There was no 
frame or knowledge or identification of that dot or any sort of intelligence with is that part of an object, a background, a foreground, a moving thing. I mean, there's just none. It was just turn the dot on, turn the dot off. So anything you brought to it about collision detection, you did from scratch. Anything you did about foreground, background, those were effects that you needed to kind of deal with. Now, thank goodness the Apple had in, in it a page flipping system, uh, because if it didn't have that, you know, really very little of this would have been possible or we'd have all gone blind from the flickering screens, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. But uh, that was absolutely key to the magic of, of changing the one high-res page address uh, locations behind the scenes, so to speak, while the other of the two was the visible high-res memory location set. So that that page flipping was key. Um, but you know that collision detection was just keeping track of rectangles and just uh, manually checking the lower left against the lower right, lower right of the other thing and the upper left of the one thing to the lower left of the other thing. I mean, it was just manually, you know, is this rectangle at all overlapping that rectangle? And again, no, nothing in the code knew what those rectangles meant. There was no visual reference. It was just those numerical values. Um, in terms of the guy running around, yeah, I, I thought about that a lot. I, I, I thought, is there a way uh, for me to have the guy have the code read the data on the screen so that you know it, as the guy runs around he could recognize oh this is a solid piece of solid ground but the apple graphics were not sophisticated enough uh, or nuanced enough or with enough colors so that i could dedicate a kind of pit, bit by bit signature in the graphics to make that possible so I couldn't have, you know, now you could have an invisible layer where there's nothing but, you know, a line telling the character where to land if you wanted to do it that way. But there there wasn't that resource. So I, you know, the guy is checking, well, how do I explain this? A kind of matrix, a, a hand-built table with hand-defined widths of rows and depths of columns so that it knows kind of where it is in that matrix and it knows how far left it can go before it needs to start paying attention to the, to another segment of that matrix. Uh, and then when it's in a flat level ground, you know, it knows, okay, I'm in this part of the this long matrix and I know now if I get farther left than this pixel or further right than that pixel, I know I have to go check the next segment or a different segment of the matrix. Um, and it's all just hand hand tooled that way, you know, segment by segment. What's the far left? What's the far right? And then within that matrix, is it flat? Is it going up to the 45 degrees to the right or 45 degrees up to the left? Or is it a tunnel where you can't stand up? You have to be crawling. So I just kind of defined, uh, you know, this table and what these different segments meant, and, and the, the the little guy is checking that uh, all the time uh, about where he is. <laughs> That's really cool. 
And so, you know, on the Gamma Sutra post, you see these notes where I am converting values back and forth between decimal and hexadecimal, because obviously the computer needs hexadecimal and I need to type them in because there's no tool to mediate for me. Um, and, but, you know, I need the decimal values so that I can keep track, you know, in a way that I could understand and compute widths, lengths, you know, total distances across the screen. So I had, you know, I had big sheets, oh gosh, three foot by two foot or something like that of, um, of the whole background screen, uh, very detailed. I mean, the, the thing I posted on Gamma Sutra is just a subset uh, of some of that, of just these big screens where I put in the de uh, hexadecimal values, uh, corner by corner, uh, edge by edge, you know, surface by surface of what each, and then the boulders have their own system <laughs> because they're all manually uh, being told uh, position by position where they can roll next and where they're branching and if they're branching where they can branch to and that's a long string of data uh, typed in by hand too. All, every rock location is actually a, specifically typed in. There's no kind of concept of between. The guy has a concept of between these two values do this. The rocks are, are hand point by point. And then if it was a larger rock, I had to do a delta where the rock was further off the ground. So there's like three or four pixels up further higher. Uh, and if they're smaller rocks, smaller. So I, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of numbers, <laughs> a lot of numbers. But at the same time, really efficient, right? I mean, at, then at runtime, you're just always doing lookups and you're never calculating anything or never trying to, you know, do elaborate. Well, that, or anything that like yes. That. Yeah, that was another part of the uh, the puzzle because speed um, and you know there's a certain laborious thing to the all these tables, but as you say, that's the way you make it run faster because uh, and also dealing with the uh, addressing system of the high risk screen, I just flattened all those values out into tables so that again I wasn't spending time thinking now how do I find the high bit high byte of the next address of the next line down. I mean that you know, then you get back to basic speed, which just wouldn't be fast enough to keep all the, all the dots going. For sure. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing uh, crisis mountain a lot on the, on the shelves at egghead software and places like that and getting pretty much universally positive reviews in, in the magazines and the trades of the, of the time. Were you prepared for the, that sort of success? Were you expecting it to do well or? Um, I, I, I was just so, was I expecting, I didn't know what to expect. Um, you know, we were just all making it up. We were making it up. Every, <laughs> everyone was making it up. Nobody knew anything. Um, you know, even the concept of what a game, a computer game was, was just extremely fluid. Um, and as I say, uh, in, in the one Gama Sutra post, you know, from going from crisis mountain to dino eggs, just the whole concept of, well, how different, how many different screens do there need to be in this thing? I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, everyone's just, you know, it's just like Hollywood. I mean, you know, there's a movie, a hit movie that's of this genre. And then, you know, everyone starts copying it. It just, that's the way it is. So. Everyone's trying to figure out 
um, how much quality needs to go or what qualities need to go into these experiences. And everyone says, oh, this game was a hit. I think it was a hit because blah. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just the same old thing. But particularly with Crisis Mountain, to answer your question, yeah, I, I just had no idea. Um, I was so pleased to get an advance check. Uh, really one of the happiest nights of my creative life, my kind of professional life, I guess you'd say. And I, I went out to dinner with my very best friend and my wife, and I just... I, I've hardly ever been happier in my life. I was just so pr pleased and proud. And then when the uh, royalties started coming in, I mean, I, 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 it didn't make me filthy rich or anything, but it certainly was lovely. It, it made me feel very much more comfortable than I had been um, uh, in other attempts at making a living since leaving, uh, since graduating from college. So it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And, um, but, you know, being who I am, I just, immediately thought, oh my gosh, now I have to do better. <laughs> and you went on to do dino eggs. Went on to to to, to do dino eggs. And, uh, you know, uh, Minor 2049er came out right between those two, uh, Crisis Mountain and Dino Eggs, and they had 10 different background screens, and that just blew everyone away. And it was a very popular game. So I, I really spent a lot of time figuring out how I could... Um, basically get as many background screens as possible. And that led to the creation of a screen generator routine for DinoEggs so that, well, there's essentially an infinite number of backgrounds available. Um, and that was a big, big part of kind of the whole schema of DinoEggs. And, 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 you know, I still in Crisis Mountain did rely on some of the machine code draw routines uh, in the upper uh, memory locations uh, of the ROM in the Apple. And I began weaning myself off of those as I went from Crisis Mountain to Dino Eggs and relied more and more on my own bitmaps. And um, that sped things up too, even further, so that I was able to do things like the Dino Mom foot and, and uh, you know, just basically take even deeper control of the screen and... and uh, and I, I just feel so fortunate with Dino Eggs that the screen, the energy on the screen, the elements of the screen just kind of came together. Everything fed into everything else. Everything interacted with everything else on the screen in an interesting way. And, and I have to say a big part of that is luck. Um, because when you, when you make these decisions, you know, how wide is it? Dino Eggs was more of a tile-based system. So how big is a tile? Wow, that decision is going to affect everything. Everything. You know, it defines the whole granularity, the size, the scope, the scale, the speed of the whole game. But you have to make that decision really early. And you don't know how that's going to feed into character movement, interaction between creatures... And so a lot of it is luck. It's like you just have to move forward and make these decisions. I could have, if I decided to make the tiles in Dino Eggs, each ledge segment um, two bytes wide instead of three bytes wide, it could have been an entirely different game. It's, it's just really hard to say. Uh, that actually segues nicely into my next question, which, uh, you know, let's 
if we could talk a little bit about the, the the game design depth that you had. I mean, Crisis Mountain was really well regarded in that way, and that there was a lot of different elements that interacted in interesting ways. But then in Dinoegs, you really took that to the next level. I mean, for me personally, it was a seminal moment when I figured out that you could start a fire to scare away the Dino Mom. Uh, and there was just little interactions like that really all over that game that you gave it these sort of layers of depth. Um, how did you, you know, approach that? I mean, for that time period, that level of game design sophistication was quite unusual. Uh, can you talk a bit about how you sort of came up with some of that stuff? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, it's layer at a time. And I knew I wanted... I knew I wanted the hero to rescue the dinosaurs from extinction. And I love the time travel thing uh, of it being his fault so that you're, you know, motivated by guilt. Um, somehow that works for me. <laughs> I, I grew up in the Midwest. What, what can I say? Um, so that worked for me. I, you know, I don't think I actually had hatching eggs at the very, very, very beginning. I just had eggs. And I think... I was originally thinking of vertical spiders, vertically moving spiders, and horizontally moving roaches. And the roaches later kind of morphed into, into slower snakes and faster protopedes. But my original concept was that the spiders and the roaches would sort of be mirror images of each other in their movement, so that the spiders would start horizontal on the top and then come down vertically, as they do. And the roaches would come up vertically and then go horizontally, which they don't. They're only horizontal. And that was one of the decisions along the way. I, I think the hatching eggs came to me pretty early. They had to have because a lot of the game, of course, is the dino babies. But it wasn't right away. I have a lot of early sketches where the, there's no babies. Um, and then, of course, I didn't think of the spiders abducting the little babies until I had babies. Uh, you know, it just... I... I seem to just gravitate toward more than one thing going on at a time in a way that just felt very fundamentally attractive to me. Uh, and, and some of the game reviews at the time made reference to that, saying, well, you can always tell a, a game by David Schroeder because you're, you're juggling these several things at once. It's not linear. It's more of, a, of, a, of an environment where you're surrounded by factors. And I, I can't really say where that comes from. I guess it comes from deep in my psyche somewhere. It just, and, and also, you know, in terms of fundamental concepts, I don't like to shoot anything. I don't like shooting things. The fact that the primary model now for games is that you shoot everything that moves, I find, frankly, depressing. Um, and I always wanted to save things. So all my games are about saving things. Um, and that's just kind of deep down in my bones, too. Um, layer by layer by layer, it, it, um, Dino Mom was definitely inspired by a short a film by, uh, Mike Newland, Bambi versus Godzilla, which is a very, uh, well-known kind of two minute joke, short film, uh, animated film that, uh, film societies back in the day showed. And it's a hilarious movie. Uh, you probably just from the title and from my homage to it in Dino Eggs know exactly what happens in the movie. And you're right. Um, and it was a great inspiration. It was a great joke. And I, I stole the idea. There's no question I stole it. Uh, but hopefully I made it my own as well. And uh, I have known people who have played Quinn I, Dino Eggs for a long, long time before finding out how to keep the 
<laughs> Dino Mom away. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I was on that list, and and we should say, you know, for anyone who hasn't played the game or or maybe has forgotten that, uh, you know, the Dino Mom foot is really it's this amazing combination of of surprise and comedy and uh, sort of drama, if you will. It's uh, you know, people can picture the Monty Python foot, this giant you know, foot <laughs> right. that comes from above, and and it's so much bigger than everything on the screen, and it's so. Uh, it catches you by surprise because it's so uh, sort of outside the paradigm of this, you know, tile-based world uh, that it's just, it's really a striking feature, um, you know, and of course the, uh, it was rendered really effectively on an Apple II. It's not easy to make things that big, you know, sc scroll smoothly down the screen like that. Uh, w w um, so can you, uh, can you talk a little bit about how... Um, your your technology evolved in terms of you know collision detection again and, and rendering and so on uh, from Crisis Mountain to you know to Dino Eggs being a tile based system did that also you know increase your sophistication in terms of how you're handling collisions and things? Uh the collisions I don't think uh, there was a way for those to get a lot different. Uh, it really was just rectangles. Uh, I think I might have gotten more sophisticated in storing all of the collision rectangles uh, in a more kind of uniform way so that I could genericize that a bit more. Uh, but there wouldn't have been anything profoundly different in collision rectangles. There was certainly something, I, I, I got lo a lot more aggressive in DinoEggs on self-modifying code um, because I just had to. I could not afford a a you know 30 line routine for graphics to do this kind of logic with the graphics and a separate 30 line uh, code for that uh, logic of graphics and when i say logic of graphics i mean you know you've got background screens you've got the storage screens where your uh, material is that you're pulling from that no one ever sees and in dinoegs there are two of those there are two background uh, screens uh, full of stuff and then you've got the two visible screens one visible at, only one visible at a time of course and you're with masks uh, you know there's an and uh, process where you're masking out uh, so that you can see dots around a moving figure like Time Master Tim not through him but around him and you don't just have a a solid rectangle of blanked out area around the moving character so there that's kind of an and uh logic there's or logic you know there's all these layers of where is it coming from what are you doing to the bits and bytes and then where is it going to and if i had a separate graphic routine for every variation of and or and sequences of ands ors and froms and twos I'd have no room for anything else. So I had to uh, kind of genericize my graphic routines. And then before I call the routine, I just poke a couple of bytes ahead to tell the op, to set certain opcodes and from and to locations. Um, and then even those became genericized so that if I, if I knew I needed to go from page three to page one, I would call the routine with that little pre-routine to set the uh, self-modifying a code ahead to the from and to so that I didn't have to write, you know, 18 different versions of that from page three to two page one routine. So it was just, you know, step by step finding ways to uh, double use, triple use, quadruple use uh, these layers of 
of self-modifying code um, to keep the, uh, the graphic routines as fast as possible. Though I suppose you could argue that self-modifying code isn't as fast as possible because you are giving up a tiny bit of speed for uh, the use of RAM, for a more efficient use of RAM, which of course I had to do because I had to fit the game into 48K. Yeah, we like to say on the show that self-modifying code is the cause of and solution to all problems. <laughs> well, I, it, it was one of those kind of amazing moments uh, like, uh, and there were several, you know, we take it now for granted. You grow up with computers, but these ideas in the very beginning, it just like this stuff I'm doing in this box can disappear in a, in a split second can just go can just it's gone. And, you know, we know now, you know, everyone grows up with this stuff. So, oh, memory, you know, oh, you know, back up your this or backup power, power outage. I mean, you, you know, we all just kind of know that landscape. But that was completely new. It's like, what? Oh, I just turned off the computer and I just lost what I did? You know, I mean, that just, it was a totally new concept. <laughs> And and the whole idea of, of what to do about it, it took some time to figure out uh, because there weren't the support systems for helping people to figure it out. And then, too, um, uh, you know, as I say in the one blog post, you know, there's really no such thing as a random number. When I found out that all the computers were just kind of, you know, making their own little thing that gave you an unpredictable number that you could you know, experience as a random number, but it wasn't actually random. That was like, uh, that was like a metaphysical curtain opening for me. It was amazing. <laughs> and, and similarly, uh, this self-modifying code, it's, it really is. It's like a, a, pa a road paving machine that is literally laying the bricks in the road ahead for itself before it travels that road. And it's really bizarre when you think about it, but you can actually make it work. So from, from Dino Eggs, then you went on to Short Circuit. Uh, can you talk about that, the inspiration behind that game and, and maybe some of the programming challenges? And Because as obviously as you're developing these games, you're, you're getting better and better and more sophisticated with your techniques. I, I hope so. I think so. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I it's really interesting because that whole thing about getting dino eggs more than two backgrounds then you know caused me to make the um, screen generator routine with totally random backgrounds for dino eggs in a way short circuit then the pendulum in my mind swung back the other way because i love dino eggs it's i'm very proud of it um, i'm also aware that even though there are infinite numbers of background screens, they sort of, in a way, are alike, too. There's sort of a trade-off. You know, the more random things get, the more generic they get, too. So I decided with Short Circuit to make the pendulum swing back the other way a little bit, and I designed 12 very distinct, unique backgrounds um, from scratch that had the advantages of fully designing the background pixel by pixel, 
but then had enough generic uh, gameplay similarity from screen to screen so that you were playing the same game and, and could enjoy it. So that was a big part of Short Circuit. Another big part of it graphically was, you know, with the limitations of the Apple II graphics, I just it just felt to me like using gray was a pretty powerful way to get the most out of the screen as, as you could. So I it all became kind of, um, and this was before Tron, but it all became kind of um, digital circuit board kind of inspired feeling on the screen with a lot of, of the Apple II gray mesh where the pixels are every other pixel odd on one line and every other pixel even on the next line. And then you got a gray out of that. And that gave me a kind of a hard-edged metallic look to the screen that I liked a lot and kind of inspired the whole concept of that game where you're inside a computer trip and a chip and trying to prevent the chip from uh, uh, triggering a, an explosion. So in a yeah. way, it's... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I want to interject that my uh, that Short Circuit is actually probably on my top three list of favorite Apple II games of all time. And, uh, for, yeah, mine too. Yeah, I mean, it's right up there with Loadrunner and Choplifter for me. And one of the reasons is exactly as you say, that, that handcrafted variety really shows. I mean, uh, it had this sort of drive to, you wanted, you were driven to keep playing further because you wanted to see what crazy new, you know, mini puzzle or mini kind of new gameplay mechanic was going to be on the next screen. And mm. it still felt like a cohesive game. So did it, did you find it took a lot longer to develop that sort of that level of handcrafted variety in a game? Or by that time, did you kind of have it down? Well, uh, it, it was another, it was the same uh, year uh, as, as my other games were. And I think, you know, you guys are, uh, I, I appreciate you guys kind of putting the spotlight on. I got better. Uh, I appreciate that. It's a compliment. And you know, I it's true. I and I I think I was able to through the experience of my first two games to hone in very efficiently on how to make each level of short circuit enough the same and enough different. I really like that rhythm. I also write music and, and I really think of it as kind of another application of musical rhythm of what's the same and what's different. Because after all, every every experience, theatrical experience, movie experience, music experience, game experience, is just kind of varying that mixture of, of familiarity and surprise and, and the new. So I, I think I, I kind of approached short circuit, I was able to approach it kind of holistically and, and, and say, I want 12 screens and here's how I can parcel, out. here's the universe of diversity that's needed to make those 12 screens both cohesive and distinct. And I, I really remember it as a pretty straightforward process of designing the kind of uh, phenomena and the variations of those phenomena and then enjoying the the pleasure of of parceling those out amongst the twelve uh, screens. And I know I did have some screens I threw out because you know it either repeated something that an earlier screen uh, did enough, or I said, oh, the only thing this new screen is adding is that this type of photon or neutron is behaving in this way. I can just put that in an earlier screen and make this 
this new screen into something totally different. So it was that kind of a enjoyable parceling out kind of planning uh, amongst the 12 screens. And then I really like that I, I give you a chance to uh, not necessarily do them in, in, uh, in order. Um, I forget exactly what the logic is, but there's some way you can, if you succeed on each screen in a certain way, you get access to the next two screens or the next two chips. Um, so that it's not a, a railroad, it's not a train track thing. Isn't that, in, didn't I do that? <laughs> you guys tell me. Yeah. Isn't there a way in yeah. there so you you have a way to, to choose how you go forward a little bit? Yeah, there is there. And uh, that's really something that sets, I think, your games apart as well, is that uh, uh, you've got a lot of uh, these kind of early game design type elements that uh, we don't really see commonly until much, much later. You know, you talked about the regenerating health and fact that you know shooting isn't the primary mechanic and you know out of order you know mission selection and you know these sorts of things that even modern games rarely do and uh, I think it's yeah I think it shows you have that sort of feel for game design as, as well as programming which is pretty unusual these days well thank you I um, you know I I when the one person um, in the comment on Gama Sutra did say about the uh, regenerating health I, I posted a reply and I said, you know, folks, chime in, you know, let me know uh, other games at that time uh, that had regenerating health because, uh, you know, I can't really do the uh, uh, research myself, but I'm really curious. I'm really curious if I sort of made that up. I mean, obviously other game forms, card games and other things had that concept and stories and books have that concept, but I, I kind of wonder, you know, where did I get that from? Or maybe did I kind of make it up? And um, another little sidebar in the same theme would be, as far as I know, uh, Dino Eggs is the first uh, home computer game to be modded. And by that, I don't just mean somebody hacked away at it in his attic. I mean, they did that with a concept and then distributed it. Uh, and and there was a version of Dino Eggs called Dino Smurf, um, which was done. And about 10% of the people who contact me about Dino Eggs first encountered the game as Dino Smurf. And a, a small portion of those people never even knew that it was Dino Eggs. They thought it was a game called, originally written as Dino Smurf. Um, so I haven't heard of another home computer game that was modded and, as I say, distributed as such uh, before Dino Egg. So that's a bit of an odd footnote there, too. Yeah, we should mention that we do a, we do a, um, an unusual or weird games segment on the show sometimes. And uh, we had previously talked about the, the first game in that trilogy, uh, Castle Smurfenstein. <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> so it's, it's really great to, to be hearing about uh, uh, Volume 2, Dino Smurf. Now, how did you find out about uh, Dino Smurf and Smurf Butcher Bob? Yeah, just just word of mouth. I just And I don't remember even what year it was. It, it, um, I have since been in touch with the fellows who did it. Um, actually several times over the years be, just because it's so much fun. I sometimes hear about it and I forward some email I get to them. Uh, but uh, it was Andrew Johnson and, and Preston Nevins and they called themselves Dead Smurf Software. <laughs> and uh, uh, I believe Castle Smurfenstein was the first one they started working on, but Dino Smurf was the first one that got out. I, I'm not, not sure, but... It, 
I, I, I don't remember the year. I know it was at least a few years after uh, Dino Eggs came out. And it was just, you know, th again, this is before the Internet. So, uh, you know, it was just kind of a random thing that somebody showed it to me or mentioned it to me. And at first I had no idea what they were talking about. And then somebody sent me a copy. But it was probably the late 80s when I first uh, heard about it. And um, then with the email and internet over the years, I've, I've been able to, to see, as I say, quantitatively kind of um, how many people encountered <laughs> uh, DinoEggs in that way. Yeah, what's interesting about both of those things, you know, the regenerating health and the modding, is that they're both very distinctive features of computer gaming. They're areas where computer gaming... Uh, expanded the genre of gaming in ways that arcades couldn't because, of course, A, you don't have access to, to any part of the game, and B, because, of course, they're just trying to take your quarters, so they would never do regenerating health. And whereas computer gaming, you know, the value proposition shifts to where you're trying to give the best experience possible for as long as possible. And again, I th yeah, I think your games are some of the earliest ones I remember that sort of leverage the advantages of computer gaming versus just trying to, you know, clone or copy... Uh, you know, arcade games. Uh, although, ironically, I guess Crisis Mountain started as a Donkey Kong clone. It's, it's funny where it ended up. Well, that's where everything started. I mean, we just, you look back in hindsight, and the, it, it is the nature of hindsight to look at what happened as somehow inevitable. And it is the pleasure of a true lover of history to go back and refresh yourself and kind of slap yourself in the face and say no it was not inevitable you know a b came from a and c came from b and um yeah it as i say nobody knew anything we were all making it up as we went along um it was individual people like me and and many others like me uh, stretching 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 what these experiences could be and even calling them games of course becomes inadequate very soon in those years because we're talking simulations uh, we're talking role-playing adventures that you know really aren't so much of a game as as a new type of of storytelling or a new type of book so it it just yeah boundaries were being uh, trumped, uh, crossed, and broken in all directions, and that was the part of the excitement of those years, of course. Now, for, from uh, from Dynaway or from from Short Circuit, rather, uh, you then sort of went off in a different direction with uh, the, uh, a series of, of family Christmas games. Uh, ho ho ho! Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, Random House uh, published those, and I'm I they clearly aren't as well known as the other games, though. By gosh, I love them. Uh, I think they're just cute as all get out, and uh, I'm very pleased with those as well. The distinctive thing there is that I, I really felt it was time to go miniature. Uh, so it's a set of games. It's a set of five games, and you can play them one at a time or in a sequence. And I really tried, you know, each of the five games isn't as d deep or complex as short circuit or dino eggs but i would say i'm kind of looking at the box as the the package as i say this i hadn't ever really thought about it this way before but i would say each of the five christmas games is head and shoulders more complex than crisis mountain um 
in in game sophistication and uh you know detail so i'm very pleased with them and they you know random house was kind of stumbling its way into the computer software arena and uh i think the challenge of selling a seasonal game was particularly difficult uh because you know the apple II you know, in just a year or so would sort of not be on the front burner of publishers' plans anymore. So it was a very brief golden age, and they, God bless them, they they, uh, paid me my advance, but uh, they were not able to sell very many of them. Now, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about before we sort of jump forward a little bit in, in your timeline, and that's that uh, you also uh, did the, the music, the art, um, you did the music and the artwork for War and Middle Earth. Now, how was that switching from doing coding to um, perhaps a different type of creativity? Yes, uh, great, great question. Um, I well, there, there are several layers to that. Um, one is there's great pleasure in the new machines, particularly in the case of the Amiga, where uh, there's just all these colors uh, and just just all these new amazing things to deal with and musically as well. You can actually play music while other things are going on. What a concept. Um, so, you know, certainly on, on just kind of a visceral level of, you know, toys to play with, that's, that's a good thing. In terms of making a living... Um, Boy, I really liked that rhythm of one one time a year kind of going and finding a publisher and then the rest of the year, more or less, I get to do creative stuff. Um, I really liked that. And that, that era was over. Um, games were becoming so complex that I couldn't do it all myself anymore. And uh, yeah, so it was a new challenge for me uh, to kind of network uh uh, also develop uh, skills with the new machines like uh, the PC and the, the Amiga and Commodore 64 and just see where I fit in the puzzle. Um, and I was able to do, as you say, the graphics and music for uh, War in Middle-Earth um, for uh, Synergistic Software, who was a subcontractor of Melbourne House. And then for uh, First Star Software, they had the Rockford... Uh, uh, Boulder Dash franchise, and I was able to do some really creative uh, background kind of icon sets uh, for that game, which I'm very pleased with. And I worked with Fernando Herrera, uh, who was also a, an early pioneer in, in games uh, in that era. Uh, he was kind of program manager on the Boulder Dash Rockford line at that time. So, you know, there are certainly pleasures there. Uh, but also, you know, more stress kind of on a, just a business and making a living um, standpoint. How did that um, How did that sort of lateral move and creativity come about? Did you go to Synergistic saying, I want to do something different, and they suggested this, or what, what happened there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, I had designed uh, birthday games very similar in concept to the Christmas games in terms of scope and style. Uh, but celebrating birthdays instead of Christmas. So, of course, uh, a publisher could sell the game all year long. Uh, but Random House uh, 
was not did not have a good experience with the Christmas games, and so I I couldn't find a publisher for the birthday games. Though as a footnote, they the birthday games did get published in Soft Talk, or excuse me, Soft Disc magazine, uh, the monthly disc based uh, magazine uh, that published actually a number of my games or republished them after they kind of went out of circulation uh, from their original publisher because I kept all the the rights to my games. Um, and I have to thank John Romero. I have to thank John Romero for uh, that uh, because he he was worked with Soft Disk. It was a different era, uh, you know. Just uh, you know, three or four years in the golden years, and then three or four or five years of more piecemeal work. I I even did some uh, adaptations, but a, a port. I didn't do many ports, but there was a port of a TV game show I did at the time that a fellow got me the job. Uh, I think what you had asked me there, uh, Mike, was kind of how did this some of these first freelance uh, jobs kind of happen? Right. And you know, it really was, it really was serendipity. I did talk to Synergistic Software. I did talk to the agent uh, who helped sell my Christmas games to Random House, and it really was kind of networking. Uh, you know, long before we had the tools we have now to network, and it really. Um, it was like knocking on doors, except you were knocking on phone numbers and knocking on uh, very, very, very early email addresses. But uh, um, I even did a port of a TV game show called Wipeout. And in fact, that was right before the Apple II market really collapsed. And I, I have to say, I wish the Apple II as a kind of primary uh, pu publishing platform had held on for just another year or two because... That was the per per hour of my time. That was enormously lucrative because I just knew the Apple inside and out. And they gave me this code and they gave me these graphics from, I don't know, the Commodore 64 or something. And I just I, I just slammed it together so quickly. I felt like Bob Bishop. Let me put it that <laughs> way. Um, but then as soon as I finished this one contract for this one game and it was paid pretty well based on the you know two or three months it took me to do it. Boom! the The rug fell out. The was pulled out from under the Apple II market, and um, so yeah, it was more scrap, scrap, and piecemeal, and and not as fun. I mean, it was fun in in the sense there were cool new tools, but as I said before, just somehow I'm built uh, so that collaboration is okay. I can do it, but I I, I just don't thrive in teams and committees uh, as well. Um, Though I did enjoy writing music uh, that didn't have to be, you know, parceled between all the other things that the 6502 chip had to do. So that was a pleasure. Uh, but it was more scrappy and piecemeal. But I was ha I'm happy overall to say that I made my living at home computer games uh, for, for nine years. And I'm very, very pleased with that. It was a very special time. Yeah, not many people can say that. <laughs> That's true. That's true, and 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 uh, yeah, I I was happy, very very pleased, and happy to have been invited to a an Apple II uh, reunion uh, a party, a reunion given by uh, John Romero and his wife Brenda Romero down in Silicon Valley. And you know, I had dealt with some of the people who were there at the party, including including John before, but had not met in person any of them, any of them at all. So it really kind of I am sort of an introvert, so I had to kind of push myself to 
to go to this event, but I'm so glad I did. And I really got a sense what you what you were saying there about how rare it was to have continuity, not just in computers, but in computer games and all of these different life stories of all these people who intersected in those early and mid 1980s with this amazing machine and then went on to do other things in other ways in other for other people uh, in the years since but we all were inspired or our lives transformed by that machine and it's really was a, a great experience uh being at that event and very pleased to meet a lot of those people um, and was struck too that I was actually one of the older people there. Um, not I was not the oldest person there, but I was two or three years out of college when it happened. And many, many, many other people were in college or in high school or even earlier. Um, so it really struck me. Uh, it, I it had never occurred to me that I might be one of the older people who kind of. Uh, meshed with the Apple II in that way, but I was toward the older end. So it was really remarkable. Yeah, we've talked a bit about that on the show, actually, like the fellow that wrote uh, Infiltrator, uh, a very successful Apple II game. Uh, he was 16 when he wrote it. And uh, so Mike and I have bemoaned that we can no longer use the excuse of having been too young during that golden age of, of Apple games to uh, to have participated. Well, it it really, hearing the stories and sharing stories yeah, it, it does have kind of this feeling to it, kind of like in the movie Close Encounters, where people just have, they're just kind of drawn. You know, it's like uh, all the characters in Close Encounters of the Third Kind are just kind of mystically touched uh, by these aliens and drawn to Devil's Tower in Montana. And, you know, there's sort of a feeling like that at this Apple II reunion, where it's like where you found it, what you felt about it. And as you were saying earlier, Quinn, the randomness of your parents giving you one for Christmas or something, and boom, things just start happening. It's quite amazing, quite amazing. So were you in your dining room then making uh, mashed potato models of Christ and <laughs> <on> Dynamics? <laughs> uh, yeah, and yelling at my kids and throwing, right. uh, throwing uh, garden plants and bushes out the window, and oh my heavens. No, I, I may have been a bit obsessed, but not, not quite that bad. <laughs> <laughs> now then, so, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say we should jump ahead uh, to the, to the, a little closer to the present now. Uh, DinoEggs is, is making kind of a comeback uh, in, in uh, modern yes. platforms. Can you talk a little bit about that? 30 years later, yeah. Yes, I'm very, very, very pleased with the game DinoEggs Rebirth. It has its own website. That's the uh, address, DinoEggsRebirth.com. And I, I hope I hope people will check it out. Um, we are going to release the game pretty soon. We're trying to get on Steam Green Steam through Steam Greenlight, and um, I've had great, great, great pleasure working with this programmer uh, Eric Ferro, uh, who is one of the best Dino Eggs players in the world. Um, and he uh, contacted me oh, about four years or so ago as a number of people have over the years, saying, can I write a new version of the game? Um, I've probably had six or eight people ask me that. And in most cases, you know, it's a hobby and they just want to talk to me or ask me a few questions about things. And I always say, um, yes, you certainly can. But if you, you know, if you want to sell it or something, let me know and we'll talk about it. Um, and it's, as I say, this has happened a number of times over the years, but I checked what Eric had done after he contacted me. He did a, 
a really fun variation on the game he called Dino Legs, which is this kind of a uh, tongue-in-cheek reference to the original game. And I really liked the new energy he brought to it. He stayed true to the game in certain core ways that I felt were very important and expanded it in other ways uh, that were very exciting. And so I said, "Can we? do you want to work together and we sell this thing? And he said, yes. And um, he's got a day job, so... Uh, good for him. He's thinking <laughs> he's a practical fellow. But we've had great, great fun exchanging just endless emails and Skype calls uh, over the last couple years, um, fleshing out the game in a way that feels true to the original and is vastly expanded, which is quite a trick. It is quite a trick because you start pulling the thread of the original fabric and you don't have to pull too many different threads before the fabric falls apart. So it's really amazing. There's just endless ways you could make a new dino eggs. In what way do you mean new? In what way do you mean bigger? In what way do you mean better? And we may not have come up with the perfect answers to those questions, but we came up with a set of answers that we're excited about and that people who've seen the uh, a preview version of the game are excited about as well. So. Uh, I'm very pleased with it. It's got uh, 40 skill levels of uh, arcade action uh, on a bigger screen with a, a bigger, broader tile system. Um, pretty much everything in the original game, there's just more variations of them. There are new kinds of boulders. Uh, there are boulders that can fall from the sky. There are types of boulders that form the structure of the cliff itself so that as you kick over boulders, you're actually changing the structure of, uh, of the screen uh, layout. Uh, there's new types of baby dinos, of course. There are flying baby dinos. There are new types of fires. Uh, uh, there, you can be more than one Dino Mom at the same time. Uh, you can interact with Dino Mom in new surprising ways that I'll just leave it at that. Um, and there are um, new ways you can climb spider threads, uh, kind of double jump on spider threads to get around the screen quicker. So there's just a lot of things, uh, and there's multiplayer. So there's just a lot of new features to the game that we've had a heck of a lot of fun uh, coming up with and um, the game uh, is uh, Windows uh, and Mac uh, OS and uh, Linux and uh, yeah we're hoping maybe we can take it further into the future and come up with a construction kit uh, for folks uh, and different things like that but we're trying to get on Steam uh, for now and we're trying to get the game out uh, hopefully uh, in a few weeks here um, as we record this, it's early November, uh, hopefully in time for the holidays. Uh, but we're just trying to navigate today's very, 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 very difficult, complex, crowded game marketplace and try our, find our niche in there and, and, and please please some fans of the game. That's awesome. Well, we'll link to that all that in the show notes, of course. Thank you. One of the common things to do today when you're when you're, uh, you know, you'd mentioned your partners need to maintain a day job and, and things like that. One of the, it seems like one of the common ways to go for for indie game development these days is is through like a, a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter or something like that. Yeah. But it looks like you didn't do that. Was there was was there was that intentional or? Yeah, I, I I've reached out for help in a variety of ways and I've gotten some uh, help from fans of the original game who are themselves in the game industry now and in fact 
Um, one of the great pleasures over the years of getting email from fans of the game are uh, a subset of those emails where they say, you, your game is one of the games that inspired me to uh, become a computer programmer or to uh, become a game designer. And, and that's just very, very lovely to hear. So, you know, I've, I've done my networking and, you know, I, I don't rule out uh, some sort of Kickstarter thing uh, for the future, but I just felt the way to play this uh, uh, was to take advantage of the fact that for Eric, the programmer, it was already um, a, a moonlighting kind of thing. Uh, and I'm, I was in the position where I did not need uh, immediate uh, financial support to participate. And I just felt like... Um, uh, our, that was kind of one of our strengths and, uh, just, uh, keep it lean and mean and go for the, the pleasure of doing it and, uh, not kind of get in deeper with bigger budgets and things. Uh, having said that, I'm, I'm very open to that possibility because I, I think there could be multiple kind of re, uh, revisions, uh, and reinterpretations of my early games, Dino Wings among them, the other games as well. And so I'm, I'm certainly open to the, Kickstarter Avenue, but um, again, you know, it just depends on the partnership, the game concept, and what's best for that game. I'm I'm finding, to be honest, at the age of sixty, I'm finding the the socialization that's needed to publicize uh, Dino Eggs Rebirth a challenge. I'm doing it, but it it doesn't come natural to me. Um, uh, I I don't come from a generation where we think I think in terms of posting and sharing and and tweeting and and all of this uh, kind of viral stuff. So it it it's a challenge for me just to get the word out on this game as it is. Let alone uh, involve the financial uh, process in that kind of social networking. So like I say, I don't rule anything out. But in terms of this first game, this one revival game or this first revival game, it just seemed like it's best to keep it simple and and uh, just concentrate on the creative aspects. Um, and that's what we've done. Well, coming on this show should definitely help. I'm sure both of our listeners will run out and uh, grab <laughs> that game. That's at least two copies you've sold tonight. Well, I, I appreciate it. It's a great, great pleasure. Uh, and yes, uh, I certainly hope uh, people will uh, uh, visit the website and spread the word. And if they feel motivated to do so, vote on Steam Greenlight and get on our email list because I'm... Um, the people on the email list uh, from the website will get heads up on on the first release, uh, hopefully, like I say, uh, before the holidays. So uh, I encourage people to do that, and I appreciate your help. Now, now, what is this buy a, a prehistoric artifact thing that I'm seeing here? On, I'm thinking of doing T-shirts. Uh, I haven't designed them yet, but I'm hoping at some point I have time to expand our offerings because I would love to have a T-shirt with a, a screen dump, uh, a screen capture, pixel for pixel true to the original game with Dino Mom coming down on top of Time Mr. Tim's head. And then the caption underneath the, the screen jump pixels would be, Dino Mom is not pleased. <laughs> and and uh, we'll see if, if I get around to doing that. And if I do it, if people will buy it. But uh, I've also thought about uh, autographing and selling some of the original source code uh, printouts of my game. Uh, I, again, I, you know, I don't know. I know people love the game. I know people um, have said many nice things to me. I don't know if that's worth 
30 bucks to people or 25 bucks to people or whatever. So I'm happy for your input on that or other people's input if they respond to this program. But I'm I'm thinking of uh, taking the original printout of the game with the source code, which is commented in hand-drawn pencil at the time uh, and with authentic uh, side perforated pin feed paper um, and autographing them and, and, you know, seeing if people are interested in, in having those as a, as they say, a prehistoric artifact uh, for a few bucks. I'd buy a page or two of that. <laughs> me too. I uh, I thought of, uh, you know, part of me says, oh, is that selling out or am I, you know, just, and then I saw uh, Steve Wozniak has a whole website, Woz signs <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Signed by Woz.com or wh whatever he calls it. And I said, okay, well, if Woz can do it, I can do it. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll sign a grapefruit if you send it to him. That's right. <laughs> well, maybe I will too. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how how far I go on it. Now, I, I had uh, one more question uh, for you. Uh, given that we're thirty some years down the road, and the focus of the Apple II hobbyist these days has turned uh, towards a lot of efforts to to preserve old software and preserve documentation um, and copyright sometimes comes up as a sticking point for whether we can turn, you know, uh, scan a manual and put it online, for example, or, or make a disk image. How would you feel about, you know, um, us uh, taking the disk images of your old games, the old Apple II versions, and making them available for, to, for people to download and use in emulators or turn into disks again at, at the other end and play on their Apple IIs? Well, I appreciate your asking. Uh, very much because, not surprisingly, many, 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 many people haven't asked or don't ask, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's just out there all over the place. I mean, I hear from people all the time who say, oh, what a great game. I I literally, I play it a little bit every night or once a week or, you know, and this is current, this is now. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if I keep up a relationship with them, then, you know, a little while later, they will sheepishly admit, you know... <laughs> I never actually did buy the game, even <laughs> even 30 years ago. You know, it's not just now because of the emulators and online, when, of course, like everything else online, you can find it somewhere for free. But uh, even 30 years ago, they will sheepishly say, you know, even in the beginning, I, I didn't actually buy it. So part of my motivation for the T-shirts and the autographs is, you know, to, to give people a place to, to play out their guilt and to, to seek absolution <laughs> for their for their guilty conscience. Um, I would say to answer your question, yes, certainly uh, the materials are shared and can be shared. And the way you can show concern for the original copyright would be to include with it uh, the original copyright and a reference to not only my name and the original copyright, but to my website. Uh, and in the case of Dino Eggs, I, any sort of mention you could make of the new game uh, in existence to, uh, to accompany the old game, of course, would be very welcome and appropriate. Um, I'm delighted that people uh, play my games even now. I, of course, do I dream if I had a nickel for every time they did so? Yeah, yeah, that that's a lovely thought. Uh, but I, 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 I have to live in the real world, and uh, so if if credit is given uh, and and acknowledgement and links to appropriate new game or websites uh, accompany it, then I have no problem with that. And I pre but I certainly appreciate your asking. Well, that's great news. Thank you very much for, for making that available to us. Yeah, and thank you very much for being on the show with us. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just uh, throw in one more thing. Uh, what I'd love to do sometime if I had time would be go back to the 6502 code and come up with actual Apple II disk image special editions. Um, oh, okay. Just kind of revisit it, flesh it out a little bit, uh, add a little bit here and there, put in a, one or two little tweaks that make it special and make it my own. And maybe even sell those disc images uh, now for two bucks or something for the emulators so that you could actually play a kind of a authentic, non-hacked uh, author's edition of, of the old game. I, I don't know if I'll get around to doing that, but that's kind of in the back of my mind as something that would be a heck of a lot of fun to do. Well, we'd have a heck of a lot of fun playing it. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> great. That's a great idea. <laughs> that's great. David, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Well, it's been a great, great pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Yes, indeed. Uh, 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 you and thank you to you and, and both of your listeners. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so much. I'm Ben Heck, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. All right, Quinn, that was a great interview that we had with David. Um, David, again, thank you for coming on and talking about your awesome games. And I hope DinoEggs, uh, the Rebirth, sells a million copies or two million or whatever you're looking for. Yes, like we said, both our listeners go out and buy it as soon as it's available. Cause it's going to be awesome. <laughs> a million times each. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, no, that was great. That was great. Uh, we do have some news, don't we, Quinn? We do, yeah. Why don't we roll right into that? It may be old, but there's still news. Apple II News. All right, so what's up first? Well, uh, 8-Bit Weapon is in the news again, as we often like to discuss their uh, exploits. And uh, for uh, any of our listeners who are uh, hardcore gamers, uh, as myself uh, am indeed, uh, and are if you are, you're looking forward to uh, Fallout 4. And uh, so 8-Bit Weapon has done a, a bit of a tribute to Fallout 4, and they're calling it Fallout 84. And uh, it's kind of a visualization of what Fallout 4 might have looked like if it had come out on the Apple II. And uh, it's pretty hilarious. Yeah, as with most things, well, everything so far that I've seen from 8-Bit Weapon and, and Seth and, uh, and Compute Her, um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's, you might be saying to yourself, well, Fallout uh, did come out on the Apple II. It was called Wasteland, and it was awesome. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is more like if it came out in its present form on the Apple II, what would it look like with assuming some sort of magical Apple II that could drive all of the technology that's in a modern AAA console game, uh, but limited in graphics and sound. So it's, uh, it's fun. I saw someone uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, on Twitter yesterday or today complaining um, that they they were being tortured because they were able to download Fallout 4 from, from Steam, but, but they can't play it yet. So it's sitting there on the hard drive just waiting. <laughs> yeah, modern game... Uh, gamers have often have this kind of thing where you know the publishers have to control the release dates but there's so many different ways to get the games that yeah they do things like they lock you out of the servers and the servers required to play or you know at least all these other weird things so yeah there's yeah steam is uh, is like that as well where you can download the game before it's legally been released so you're not allowed to play it yet it's very strange 
Yeah, I think I think it's actually a good idea because it saves their service from crashing from overload from gamers trying to download it at twelve oh one on a certain day. So <laughs> yeah, if they can, if you if you pre buy it, then you can preload it and it's downloaded a few hundred copies at a time or whatever the buy rate is, and so instead of being slammed. So yeah, it's actually quite quite smart. But this is not a console gaming co- podcast uh, or <laughs> a mo- modern gaming podcast. This isn't, this isn't Final Fantasy talk or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> nope. And it's also not a sports podcast. And yet we're going to talk about ESPN. Uh, what's going on here, Mike? Yeah. So this is a, sort of a, an interesting little uh, mini documentary. It's only about 11 minutes long uh, and it's called The Blue Box Documentary. Um, and it's been it's put out by uh, 538. That's all one word dot com, which I think is a little it's a documentary um, film production company, but they're owned by ESPN. But I don't know that ESPN really has a whole lot to do with them other than when they bought 538. They said, you will also do sports documentaries sometimes. So when you go to their Web page, you'll see a bunch of sports documentaries. But uh, this one is particularly fascinating. It's only like I said, it's about 11, 12 minutes long. It, it almost feels like a preview to a larger movie, but it's not. There's a lot of stuff packed into that 11 minutes. They interview was they have some uh, footage, uh, stock footage, or um, uh, what do they call that? That the footage from from Jobs when he was alive, talking about it, uh, as well as uh, John. I think his name is Lapsley. Is that right? He wrote the wrote a, a book on uh, the history of phone freaking and, and, and the phone companies, which is fascinating. You should buy it and read it. Um, and, but yeah, it, it's it's a neat little piece. And, and they talk especially about uh, one thing that we actually don't talk too much or haven't talked too much about on this show, but is often mentioned as sort of the founding document for Apple before there was Apple was the 1971 Esquire magazine uh, article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box that uh, Steve Wozniak uh, stumbled across and he ran over to Jobs' house and they they read it together and they were reading it and they said, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in here that's too specific to be fiction. Let's go try it. And that's that's how that inspired them to to build blue boxes and they sold them for money and that kind of went, I guess, to help fund startup Apple. <laughs> yep. Apple before it was Apple. They were hooligans. That's right. So check it out. It's uh, probably shorter than it took me, shorter than the time it took me to talk about it. But <laughs> that's okay. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. We've got uh, some new hardware here from Ultimate Micro. Uh, the new eight megabyte RAM cards for the 2GS are now available, and eight megabytes is a fairly astonishing number for a 2GS. Uh, my own 2GS has one and a quarter megabytes of original 1986 RAM in it. And uh, I thought I was a pretty big deal back in, back in the day, but uh, <laughs> nope. Turns out I was only one seventh of a big deal because uh, to be a big deal these days, you got to have eight megabytes. But this is a really awesome card, and uh, we'll link to that where you can buy it. And as we've said in the past, you know, if you want something like this, go buy it now because it's not going to be available for long, and then you'll be sad because you won't don't won't, won't have eight megabytes, and you won't be a big deal. You'll only be one seventh of a big deal like me. <laughs> And there's also uh, Dagan Brock has been one of the beta testers for this device, and he's posted a video of uh, testing it on his 2GS. So we'll link to that for the heck of it, because why not? It's uh, $250 um, from, the, from the Ultimate Micro store, or there's a, a few listed on eBay for $279. So I guess if you're one of the insiders and you know about their web page, uh, you can go buy it there for a little bit cheaper. All right. Well, if there was an award for most persistent Apple II publication, 
in in the sense of never quite giving up, uh, despite Careful. every time we think it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> not to inter- not not to interfere with Juice GS's uh, record <laughs> as the only uh, continuously published uh, magazine, but if there's a record for longest intermittently published uh, magazine, <laughs> I guess that goes to Call Apple. Yeah, so uh, Brian Weiser and Bill Martins, both of whom have been on the show in the past, so uh, I guess they're friends of the show, uh, have announced that the uh, that Call Apple has returned once again. It, it ran from 78 to 1990 under Val Golding's stewardship, and then Bill Martins published it from 2002 to 2010, and now it's back. Uh, it is a PDF uh, only format, so you'll uh, and it's it's free, but it's part of their membership package. So you have to be a member of the Call Apple user group, and then you'll get access to download the PDFs. And uh, looks like number one is available now. I, I'm not a member, so I'm not sure. But if it's not, then it will be shortly. Very cool. Good to see that back. Well, that wraps up uh, probably the weirdest news segment that we've done. Uh, <laughs> as you can probably tell, Mike and I are uh, jamming this in here between. Uh, other life uh, uh, demands, but uh, we're determined to get it done. Well, we cut it a little bit short because we have a ton of user feedback this month. (laughs) That we do. Let's uh, jump right into that. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think. Well, the uh, Geos uh, n- non-contest, uh, non-test maybe? Uh, the, <laughs> non-test, you know, let's, I like let's that. Let's roll with that. The Geos non-test cool. uh, generated quite a bit of feedback. And uh, gosh, what would have happened if we'd actually offered a real prize? Um, oh my goodness. Yeah, I guess we did offer a prize of sorts, which was who can uh, find the secret phrase in the Geos disk image that we linked to last month. And the we have couple of winners. The I'm going to say first the, the official winner uh, was listener Jorma, who I believe is from, I'm going to guess, Finland. Yes. Oh, I guessed it right. From Finland. Mm. Uh, he was the first person to win legitimately. And uh, the secret phrase, uh, for those of you who haven't already figured out, was, of course, Buatari. And <laughs> now I say that Jorma was the first official winner because he did it legitimately. He loaded up the uh, uh, disk image and found the secret phrase in it. Uh, unofficially, I have to say, uh, Kevin Savitz was the winner uh, <laughs> because he actually, uh, as soon as the episode was posted, he actually replied on Facebook, I don't even have to launch the disk image. I know the secret phrase is Buatari. And I guess I'm getting predictable in my old age because he was quite correct. But he is disqualified for not having done the official disk image loading process. Boo Kevin. <laughs> yes, boo Kevin Savitz. Uh, no, yay Kevin Savitz because he's awesome. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's see. We've got lots and lots of feedback here. Uh, we've been piloting up a little bit. Uh, let's see. I'm going to read one from uh, listener Tony who says, a Sad day has come upon me. I've finished listening to all the back episodes of Open Apple. Well, uh, lucky for you, we've been making them longer and longer, so you'll have much more to listen to shortly. Uh, he says, uh, while listening to Open Apple 14 and 15, Jordan Mechner's name came up several times. Has he been a guest on Open Apple? Uh, I don't think so, Mike. Has he? He is not. Okay. Well, we'll see what we can do about that. There's certain well... uh, dignitaries that we would very much like to have on the show. Jordan Mechner, of course. Uh, Bill Budge is another. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, some of these people are hard to hard to track down and or have yeah. no interest in talking to us. <laughs> so. Exactly. There's there's certain uh, there's, there's a bit of a caste system, I I would say, <laughs> and there are you know when you when you reach above your uh, above your social standing, they they tend to smack you down and just ignore you and or say no. And uh, I think I think Mechner might be a little bit uh, beyond our our stratospheric reach, but uh, we'll try. Yeah, that's uh, that's something that uh, you know never hurts to try. So we'll uh, we'll see if our people can uh, contact his people and and maybe do lunch. All right. So uh, let's see. I'm going to skip over lots of people talking about show lengths. Uh, <laughs> we uh, as we said before, uh, we have about fifty fifty split. People who think it's just fine and people who think it's too long. Um, we are trying to tighten it up a little bit. Uh, I guess I should speak to that. So last month was our first attempt to tighten up the show and, uh, it came in at about two hours and 40 minutes, <laughs> I think. And, uh, trust me when I say we did you a favor for those of you who wanted a shorter show, cause we cut oh, out more goodness, than yeah. half of the news items and it still came out at that length. So what can we say? Mike and I just love talking Apple too. Hard to shut us up. Well, uh, there's always the option of just simply becoming a purely an interview show and dropping the news altogether. We could do that. Eh, you know, yeah, like we said last month, uh, I think what we can bring to the community is a little more in-depth discussion of the news. So we like sure, talking about sure. this stuff. Uh, all right. So skipping around a little bit here, we got uh, one from listener Alex who says, uh, how about an interview with, an interview with 4 a.m.? Uh, if he or she does not want to reveal their voice, we could transcribe what they say and run it through a mocking board, which is a funny idea. I like that. Um, yeah, so we've joked about this in the past, uh, maybe uh, uh, having 4 a.m. on in some sort of capacity, perhaps an, an email interview that Mike and I just read to each other or something. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, 4 a.m. has declined our, our uh, generous offer to be on the show. Uh, however, uh, Juice GS will be doing a written interview with 4AM, so uh, you can uh, catch up on that when that comes out. Tonight, the role of 4AM will be played by Quinn Dunkey. <laughs> That's right. I hack you good. Um, <laughs> more and more people turning us down for interviews. That's great for our, our <laughs> yeah, self-esteem. This, this, yeah, this is going great. Uh, in a couple of months, <laughs> just Mike and I interviewing each other. So <laughs> You like Apple too? I like Apple too. That's right. <laughs> All right. As you can tell, we're a little silly tonight, folks. It's a grim future, folks. <laughs> it really is. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. So here's a little more recent one from uh, listener Avi. So uh, he has a correction for us for, for our episode 52, where we talked to Robert Bodage. That was, of course, the Geos episode. Uh, Robert was talking about uh, the pre-binding delay in OS X when you see it saying uh, optimizing system software. And I had, uh, off the top of my uh, head said that, oh, it still does that. Well, it does still say optimizing system software, but that no longer means pre-binding. Um, so Avi points out that it, as of 10.5, uh, the dynamic linker was rewritten to use a shared cache, and that uh, made pre-binding no longer necessary. So, uh, and of course, it wouldn't work nowadays, and modern code is all code signed for security, so you couldn't do the kinds of things that pre-binding did nowadays. But uh, it's it was a neat technology for the time. So thanks for that correction. And let's see, we got a bunch of people guessing the secret phrase. We had a number of people actually fire up the uh, Quinn's Ultimate Geos disk image. So thank you all for that. It was fun to have people do that. Um, I was actually a bit surprised to see how many people did. In fact, uh, listener Chris, I want to call out, actually sent us cool screenshots of my disk image running on his Laser 128 EX, which is very awesome. 
that mm. uh, brings a, a warmth to my heart because that's also how I ran it was on my Laser 128. I think we mentioned last month the Laser 128 had a uh, switch on it that would disable the color burst so you could get a pure monochrome signal. And uh, so it made Geos really nice. No color fringe. Uh, let's see. More people guessing uh, the phrase was Buatari. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the last one I've got is, uh, so another a number of people noticed, uh, a number of people tried to load up the Geos disk image in uh, Virtual 2 and discovered, as I had said on the episode, that if you try to do that, your mouse won't work neener neener uh, because the driver that is installed on that disk image for the mouse is for the 2C family of machines. So... Uh, Virtual 2's 2E mouse emulation uh, will not have the correct tracking, and we can talk about a little bit about that in the upcoming tech segment. But uh, our listener Adam writes in with a nice little tip. If you turn on uh, relative mouse mode in Virtual 2 under the quick settings, uh, the mouse will actually work a little better even with the wrong driver. So that's kind of neat. But uh, yeah, the of course proper solution is if you just install the 2E mouse driver, then uh, the mouse will work just fine in Virtual 2. Uh, but I wanted to make you all use real hardware, so neener, neener once again. <laughs> all right, that's all the feedback I've got. Mike, do you have any uh, hiding in your box? Nope, nope. I'm just uh, enjoying listening to you uh, smack our listeners down. Great stuff. <laughs> yes, well, if I haven't alienated somebody, either uh, our users or past guests or future guests or something, then then I'm not, not doing my job here on the show. Okay, well, let's uh, let's roll on into the tech segment then. Fasten your seat bits and warm up your soldering irons. It's time to talk tech. So the uh, Geos episode brought up uh, a, a lot of questions people had about the uh, mouse. And so I thought I'd do a really quick rundown of the differences between the 2E mouse and the 2C mouse. And uh, this will be old news for anyone who saw my talk on programming the mouse at uh, Kansas Fest this year. Uh, but for those of you who were not able to attend, I can do a very, very quick summary of the key differences. So the uh, the Apple II, the 8-bit mouse, was originally developed for the 2E, and it was developed uh, alongside a you know a, the Apple Mouse card. And the idea they had there was, oh, well, we'll put a dedicated 6502 on this thing, and it will handle all of the mouse for us, and so we don't have to burden the CPU with it. And uh, that was a that was a pretty good idea, uh, which then immediately fell apart when they wanted to make the 2C. So uh, the Apple Mouse card was in development while the 2C was in development at the same time. And so what they ended up doing actually was kind of putting the t- Apple Mouse card on hold and then developing mouse support for the 2C uh, and then going back and releasing the Apple Mouse card. So uh, the, the main difference is that the uh, 2C, of course, has uh, vertical blank interrupts, which, you know, it was the first Apple II to have real vertical blank interrupts. And uh, so they took advantage of that to drive the mouse, uh, but the mouse is controlled by the main CPU. And the problem with that is that it's kind of a lot to ask of the CPU because it's trying to do everything else, right? Uh, so in order to reduce the burden of uh, all the mouse tracking interrupts going off all the time, they sample the mouse at only 30 hertz on uh, the 2C. But on the 2E, with an Apple Mouse card, it has its own 6502 right on the Apple Mouse card. So that whole CPU's got nothing else to do. So it, it can sample the mouse at 60 hertz, which is much better. Uh, so that's why the tracking is much different on the two machines. So, you know, if you're writing mouse code, you have to compensate for that in your own code. You have to detect a minor 2C or a 2E, and if so, you have to uh, have or double your mouse tracking speed. 
Uh, and then, you know, you see that in Geos, where if you try to use the 2C mouse driver in Virtual 2, which is emulating the Apple mouse card, you get the tracking is all wonky. Uh, and that's why that is. So that's a, uh, a very quick elevator summary of the differences between uh, the mouse on the 2E and the 2C. One is interrupt driven by the main CPU, and one is polling driven by a, a coprocessor that's on the Apple mouse card. Hope that answers some questions, and uh, I can link to my mouse talk, which uh, Jason Scott has graciously uploaded to archive.org. So uh, if you want to get even deeper with this stuff, you can see all the sample code and uh, all the slides and stuff that go with uh, Apple II 8-bit mouse programming. Uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Well, that's all I have for this tech segment. Uh, Mike, any closing thoughts, or should we wrap this baby up? Oh, uh, let's take this out back and shoot it in the head. <laughs> Uh, well, it's been uh, it's been a fun uh, it's been a fun show. I think uh, we got quick and quick and dirty news and feedback, and we got an awesome interview with David. So thanks again, David, for being on the show with us. Yeah, that uh, that was really great. Um, you know, we we got to talk to the developers of uh, a developer of a couple of our favorite Apple II games, and hopefully yours too. So again, thank you, David. Uh, good luck with your. Uh, uh, with the Dino Eggs Rebirth, I know I'll be buying a copy. And uh, again, thank you everyone for listening. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com. Uh, well, actually, you can't. We don't have a Facebook page, do we? We just post to the uh, Apple II enthusiast group, and that, yes. that probably makes sense. So, <laughs> uh, but if you uh, if you want to if you want to yell at us or or insult us or anything like that, you can email us at uh, open-apple.net. Uh, there's a, um, a contact form there or feedback at open-apple.net. That's right. And if you have a few drachmas you might want to throw our way to help defer the significant operating costs of the show, please uh, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash openapple. And until next month, I will be playing Short Circuit. So, Waz, first off, could you describe what's happening in this picture? Well, the picture looks like Myself and Steve Jobs, might have been Steve Jobs' bedroom in his home, and he's holding something about the size of a blue box, and it's black like our blue boxes were, but I couldn't verify it is a blue box from this picture. Waz is the first person I met that knew more electronics than I did, and one of the things that Waz and I did was we built blue boxes. They were devices that you could build to let you call anywhere in the world for free. These were illegal, I have to add. Of all the articles I've ever read in my life, the Esquire article, Secrets of the Little Blue Box, was the one that affected my life the most. I started reading this article of brilliant engineers. They were rebelling against the phone company. I was intrigued about being a part of this little rebellious thing. The fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure that was magical. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions, or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net. Sometimes I say something, and as soon as I say it, I'm like, oh no, that's going to be the blooper, isn't it?